0: So my first work I did with vitamin C, a lot of it was with cancer cells. Mm-hmm. Well, cancer cells, you grow them in a culture dish. They grow kind of like fungus. I mean, yeah. they grow a lot faster than you would expect a cancer to grow. So the first thing I did was added vitamin C to the media when I plated it, and they wouldn't stick to the dish. So what? I come back the next day and I don't have any cancer cells. You're so kidding. So I was like, okay, well, okay. So I prayed them. Then I waited for two days and talked to some other people from the lab. Then I added vitamin C and I measured the apoptosis level. The apoptosis was like 40% of the cells. So I started killing him off.
1: Hi guys, welcome to Stand Firm. I'm so excited to be here today with you guys. I have a special guest with me. This is Dr. Sant. He is actually one of my professors at Nordic College of Osteopathic Medicine here in Provo. And he is a geneticist and has taught me um, a lot of different things. I actually do research with him on my sister, which has been super, super cool. Uh, But I wanted to bring him on today to talk a little bit about genetics um, and our health. But first and foremost, I kind of want you to introduce yourself, just because I think a lot of people hear the word geneticist, and they have no idea what that means. So for the general population, what what would you say that means?
0: Well... Generally speaking, when somebody says geneticist, that yeah. probably means they're a clinician and they work with people as a geneticist, oh, like a like medical a geneticist. So I don't do that. I really just do research. Okay. I actually am applying to go back and do a fellowship in genetic pathology.
1: Oh, I didn't know that. But
0: yeah, it's it's because we're trying to start up some more... We'd like to do some more clinical stuff with genetic testing, Okay. but I don't have the credentials to run that. So I am okay. applying to go back and do that. Okay. But um, what I do is really research on genetics and okay. I went and started, so I did an undergrad in molecular biology. Mm-hmm. Then I went and did a PhD in genetics and learned that I probably should have done an undergrad in computer science instead. Uh-huh. So during my postdoc, I was in bioinformatics and they allowed me to do a master's program during that. And it was, it's called biomedical informatics, but I did an emphasis on data science. So basically data science, if you know what that means,
1: which I honestly don't. So what does that mean?
0: Basically it means I do, I do some computer programming, but it's more numbers based and less of writing hardcore programming.
1: Okay. And is that in relation to like medicine? Like are you taking data and like analyzing data from like statistics or things like that? Or how, how does that kind of apply to, um, genetics in terms of like medicine
0: well it could be any of that okay. for genetics specifically you do a lot of what's called bioinformatics okay. it's just that if i try to let's say i wanted to look at variations you had in let's say an exome okay. and an exome is a subset of the genome so it's not sequencing everything but it's sequencing the most likely to be relevant parts yeah okay you don't catch everything but it's the most likely to be relevant yeah. and if i do that you still end up with probably probably 30 million reads and okay. each read it was going to have probably what I used to work with would be two sets. So it's paired end reads. Each read is 125 base pairs. Okay. So you end up with kind of really big data. Okay. So if you don't know how to write programming, you're probably never going to be able to make anything out of it. So you work okay. with a lot of programs to try to condense it down and figure out what's either, in, if it were next one, would be what's different between you and the general population. Okay. So that's find, why
1: you're doing it is to find discrepancies between you and the general population. Right. And why does I've, that matter?
0: Well, it depends. Arguably, you could say it adds value and it doesn't matter. Okay. However, sometimes you have a disease and you want to know what's causing it. Okay. Or sometimes we do have things we want to treat and, well, if you have no idea what's causing the differences, there's no way to figure to treat it. Yeah. Or change it, even if it, like you could find something that's good and we want to find out what makes this population have something better. Yeah. That we'd still have to do something like that to find it, usually.
1: Yeah, and then from that information, that's kind of where we're headed now, right, with being able to manipulate certain things to change the DNA right if we want to make something better
0: there are things you can do to change the DNA directly unfortunately those tend to be really really expensive okay around the price of about a million dollars a person for okay
1: and we're talking that would be something like CRISPR right uh
0: that's AAV a virus usually that you put in you want to do CRISPR the only ones I've actually seen successful that I really trust have been doing it at usually they'll do it on sperms or oocytes Uh uh-huh And then they just, or uh, there have been some where they did it at the blastocyst stage Mm -hmm. and then grew it out. And it was, it somatically changed. It It would only change some of them, but it worked and they could proliferate it out.
1: That's so cool.
0: But those are, we're not doing those in humans, simply put.
1: We're just not there yet.
0: Well, I would argue you could do it, Mm -hmm. but I would, I would want a lot of quality control if you're going to make a human come out of that.
1: That makes sense. I understand what you're saying. So that's kind of cool, though, that you're kind of at the forefront of combining technology with genetics. And I think a lot of people don't, like I mentioned, don't totally understand what genetics even means. But um, essentially, you know, everything is from a gene, right? All the proteins we code for, and all that stuff. And so I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about health, just because I thought you would be a great person is because you're obviously somebody who works out, we talk about that a lot. Um, And then you're also in the genetics field. So Um, When it comes to how genes are influencing our physical health, that's kind of one of the things I wanted to touch on. And obviously, like, there is a difference between, like, something that you can and can't control, right? So we have diseases that are already genetically predetermined. Like, you can't impact that, right? Like Huntington's, for example. Right. You know, like, that's not something that you're going to change. But when it comes to, I think, obesity, like, that's been a really big topic of discussion the last couple years as we've kind of started to embrace that community and kind of still learn about like what is causing it, right? So, you know, in your opinion from the data that you've seen thus far, and there's, there's a couple studies I want to talk to you about, but first and foremost, right off the bat, would you say that obesity is something that is multifactorial? Do you think it's more influenced by genes? Do you think it's more influenced by diet and lifestyle? Um, anything that you've, um, read or researched that you could maybe speak on and what your thoughts are on regarding all that in the community?
0: So obesity is definitely multifactorial. Okay. However, I would say the biggest problem is definitely diet and lifestyle. Okay. So obviously the American style is we have McDonald's and Burger King yeah. and we sit at computers. Yeah. And most people don't like to exercise every day. Yeah. So I think that's really our number one killer. Okay. But um, even being sedentary if you're not obese is still a problem. So just that alone causes complications. Yeah. But there is a genetic aspect to it. uh the most well studied genes would be leptin and ghrelin yeah and they may not necessarily people don't necessarily know have like direct things like this variant will absolutely cause obesity yeah but if you knock out the genes entirely which they've done in mice and rats then it will okay and And so
1: explain to us a little bit just kind of before we get into a little bit more to the general population what is leptin and ghrelin
0: uh i don't completely remember (laughs) <laughs> this isn't stuff that I so that's talking more about the proteomic side of it. Yeah, but I believe leptin is a hormone that does influence how hungry you are. Yeah, and I believe it. I believe it does have something to do with your diurnal cycle. Okay, I'm not completely certain on that one. Okay, I might be thinking of orexin with that one. But, yeah, um, but the leptin and ghrelin will affect how hungry you are and what yeah. your body does with the food too.
1: Yeah, and from what I had learned, it was just that ghrelin. We we learned that thing from dr bar she's like ghrelin makes you grow so it's like or makes your stomach growl so ghrelin makes you hungry and leptin makes you feel full because it keeps you lean right and so kind of back to what we were talking about earlier with the leptin and ghrelin because i was researching that too like to me it made sense i was like well if you genetically have a polymorphism in your leptin or ghrelin encoding genes. And that could potentially cause you to either be more hungry all the time or whatever. And so I had kind of written it down cause I wanted to ask your intake on it. And it was funny cause you, you're somebody who knows stats, like you taught us stats. So it's for you, you can always like pick out BS and like a study right away. I feel like like, you know,
0: I'm pretty good about that. Yeah. For most of them.
1: So I had read this and it was 24 case controlled studies And it said that the most prevalent leptin receptor genes (LEP and LEPR) um, and the ghrelin receptor genes (GHRL and GHSR). um, They said that the most prevalent polymorphisms, the single nucleotide polymorphisms, um, were these different variants that they found, respectively. Um, But it said that our. They said the study suggested that the associations between these polymorphisms and obesity were inconclusive on people. But like you mentioned, they did studies on rats and whatever. Well, and they saw you this. said
0: these are common variants. Yes. These are not detrimental variants. If you okay. were to get people that instead of having a common variant had one, that's more like a one in a million that could definitely cause it.
2: Okay. So you're,
0: okay. You're going to have variants in all of genes. every gene has some kind of variance, unless it's something that can't something that if you change a little tiny bit, it changes the function of the protein and that protein's necessary. That's when you don't see any variants ever generally speaking, pretty much all the genes have something that can change. It sounds like they were looking at things here. Probably what they did was GWAS studies. What's be- that? Uh, GWAS would be a genome-wide association study. Okay. Generally, it requires a really big sample size. And you just compare case and control, and you just look at, is this variant more common in one group or the other? Okay. And in this case, they looked at really common variants. Well, I would be willing to bet money that a lot of those people in the obesity group, if you change their diet and lifestyle, they wouldn't be obese
1: okay and so kind of because this is actually something that i struggled with was kind of reading interpreting data in the school year how so when you say the most common variants like why is that not as significant as variants that aren't as common
0: well variants that are detrimental tend to be really uncommon because they cause disease which means you're less likely to pass it on oh because like
1: you don't live
0: well it depends if it's going to be something like uh Let's say a variant that means if you knock it out, you don't form a heart. Well, you'll never see it because they don't live at all. They're never born. It doesn't matter.
1: Oh, I see what you're saying. But
0: there are other ones that it matters. It's just not as important. So you can live with them, but they cause a problem. So things like related to um, old age onset diseases Uh like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or any form of dementia or or variants that say affect your height. Yeah. Well, being short or tall, uh, taller than the average person, isn't going to really be a disease. It yeah. doesn't really hurt anything, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. So things That's that are point. that are not going to change things a lot, they tend to be really common. Okay. Whereas ones that are truly detrimental tend to get very rare.
1: Okay. And so because they're so common, we're kind of understanding that. Does that mean that you can't like decisively conclude that those are causing obesity?
0: Well, actually, with GWAS studies, you generally can't conclude that it's a direct cause for most things usually find an association so this kind of study usually end up with an odds ratio and if you have an odds ratio of 1.5 that's actually pretty significant okay i mean it sounds small but a lot of times it's like this contributes to it but no it's not the only cause
1: okay and so that's why they can't be like definitively conclusive like we know this and it was funny because you mentioned like the rarer it is like the more It's almost like that flip, right? If it's more rare, like, it's going to be more, like, definitive. And so there was um, the most commonly implicated gene um, is MC4R found in, like, 5% of obese people in various ethnic groups. And it seemed as though that there was, like, a very distinct correlation with hyperphagia. And people who had that.
0: So that actually sounds like it's a lot more likely to be real because first of all, you said it's to be real. (laughs) Well, it's across multiple ethnicities. So if you find it in one group and it doesn't verify in another one, it's less likely to be true. So if they've tested it in multiple ethnicities, that's good to know that. So that's important. Well, it can be sometimes, sometimes only one ethnicity has the problem. I see what you're saying. It's that's not usually the case. Something like obesity, no, everybody, of every ethnicity. Okay, so
1: that makes it more credible, the fact that, okay.
0: And 5% of the people, I mean, if it's only affecting 5% of the people, it's obviously not the cause. But it very well could be contributing and be a big part for those 5%.
1: That's a good point. Okay, I'm glad that you mentioned that. And to kind of clarify for people who don't know, what is a polymorphism?
0: Oh, it would just be any change in the genomic DNA.
1: That's like from the normal.
0: And that's not saying... So polymorphism has a connotation of being like something evil or bad. Yeah. It's not necessarily Mm -hmm. true. Yeah. Sometimes a polymorphisms good. Most of the time it's neutral. Sometimes it's bad.
1: Like, do you and I have polymorphisms that aren't like um, expressing themselves? Or they might be and we just don't know. Well, they
0: are expressing themselves. It's just that they're... Not important ones. So anything okay. that has a lot of genes that contribute to something, like, for instance, height or weight or things like that, yeah. or skin color. Usually there's a lot of markers. Getting a change in a couple of those, everybody's going to have change. Everybody has differences in those. Yeah. But they're kind of an additive effect for a lot of those traits.
2: Okay, that where makes sense. It's
0: easier to look at things that are a definitive disease, where it's yeah. you very clearly have the disease or you very clearly do not have okay. the disease. But in reality, that's not how most things are.
1: That makes sense. Okay, and kind of the last kind of section that I wanted to talk about regarding genes and obesity, the obesity that has been researched that I found was the fat mass and obesity associated gene region. So it's called FTO, and it says, from what I read, this was on PubMed, I believe that, it says that the FTO gene harbors the strongest known susceptibility locus for obesity. Um, It said the association of the FTO risk allele with the odds of obesity is attenuated by 27% 27% in physically active adults highlighting the importance of physical activity in particular to those genetically predisposed to obesity.
0: Well, attenuating it by only 27%. What
1: does that even mean?
0: Well, if I'm understanding this correctly, yeah. it sounds like, yes, this gene will cause obesity, but if they exercise, it that effect is not 100%. It's only going to be 73% of the effect.
1: Okay, and that was also weird to me because I'm sitting there and they're like, yeah, so basically people who have this locus or whatever, if they exercise, they're going to be less obese. I'm like, same with everyone else on the freaking planet. Like,
0: I, I don't know what to say. I am to that. not 100% certain. I wonder if it means like the effect of the obesity because yeah. like people – they take people that compare people that don't exercise – in the not without the variant versus people that don't exercise with the variant, then there's a big difference. Yeah. You take the people that exercise across all groups and the difference is smaller.
1: Yes. That's my guess. So what is like, they're describing a locus. Like what's the difference between that and a gene is the locus, like a whole region. What are, what is the difference there?
0: It depends. In this case, it could be the same thing, Oh, but the locus could cover several genes. Okay. So we don't really know the locus is just the region.
1: So is that their way of saying that we're not completely sure exactly where to pinpoint this? So we're going to,
0: well, I haven't read the study. They may have, they may have done something to follow up with it. It's pretty common to do a GWAS study. You find a region, then you do something with, with more rare variants. Yeah. Well, maybe not necessarily rare, but Mm -hmm. rare variants within the region and try to pinpoint more specific things. Yeah. Um, sometimes you end up going and doing like, like full next gen sequencing to get the whole sequence of a specific exon or something like that. Yeah. But, it, I don't know. Just depends.
1: Okay. Well, I was honestly just kind of surprised in general. I totally thought when I started researching this, that there was going to be like, this gene is responsible for like obesity or whatever the case may be. But I was surprised that there, there hasn't been anything like super definitive that they've been able to come out with. Um, and all the studies, of course, at the end, they all say obesity is multifactorial. And I'm like, well, yeah, of course. And yeah. it's like, for sure. There are some people that naturally gain weight easier than others. Like, I think we talked about this one time. I mean, I am the type of person that I can pretty much eat what I want and I won't gain weight. That doesn't mean that my body composition is going to be good because you can always be thinner and have more fat on your body. But like you mentioned that you have to be consistent with your diet.
0: Yeah, I come from a family that's a little bit the opposite where yeah. we have to be pretty careful.
1: So like is that is that a genetic factor? That's a genetic
0: factor. So, so how do you
1: find that out?
0: Well, you can do some testing. There are groups that will do the testing for you. But you do need to keep in mind, there are a lot of genes that influence that. So you're going to have, if it's something that's like, I'll test you for one gene, don't trust it. Okay. That's probably doesn't matter.
1: So how do they know what to look for if they haven't been able to definitively say, we know that this is like contributing to obesity. Like how do these people, if these companies or whatever that are testing you, if people want to get tested, how do they know what to look for?
0: Usually they're going to have to do something big. So they will probably do a SNP chip and they usually look at something like 4 million variants or something like that. And then of those 4 million, from the GWAS studies, we know that 237 of them happen to be related. Okay. And, and individually, they probably have really small odds ratios. So you might have an odds ratio of like 1.07, meaning like a 7% difference. So okay. it's pretty small. Okay. But when you look at all of them together, now you can get a decent answer. Okay. However, I don't think that for the vast majority of people, unless you have somebody that has a very rare, like a complete leptin knockout. Yeah. you're going to find that most of the time it doesn't matter what you're born with, exercise and diet will change it. So it's going to it's going to be largely based on lifestyle.
1: It just might be easier or harder for some people. Correct. And I like that answer because I would I remember back when I kind of first started training, I would have clients who were middle-aged and they were like, "I just I can't lose weight cuz like my genetics." And I was like, "I don't really know if that's like the right answer, but I was trying to be sensitive cuz I was like, well, I'm not fully educated on this yet, you know, I don't totally understand, but Because at the same time, if you learn these things about your genetics, I think people can either choose to use it as an excuse or they can use it as a way to cope with and learn how to move forward in a better direction and know what to focus on.
0: I think it's really common for people to just use things like that as an excuse all the time. Yeah. Or it didn't used to be this way, it seems like, but it's gotten more and more and more. Oh, well, I can't do that because I have anxiety. I can't do that because I have depression. Oh, well, I have... I have problems with, I have ADD, so I can't do that. Oh, so uh, so I'm just different. Yeah. Well, no, it doesn't matter what you were born with. You have to work with it. Yes. So when I wanted to cut and I wanted to get down to, when I was trying to get to 12% body fat, I did a diet of 1,200 calories a day Mm -hmm. because that's all I could do. That's the only way to do it.
3: Yeah.
0: But, well, other people, or I knew people that did bodybuilding shows at 1,800 calories a day Yeah. and they cut just fine.
1: Yeah. So, it's so like just, genetics matters, but use it to your advantage to help you become a better you. Right. For sure. And I'm so, it's so funny that you mentioned the mental health side of things because that's kind of what I wanted to transition to for the second part of this is that how are genes influencing our mental health? Because I, I do agree that, like, with the general consensus that it's important that we talk about mental health, I think that's great because I think it was not like that in the past. But it's almost like we've swung too far to this side. I feel this way a little bit that people, now that we've talked about it, we accept it, people use it as an excuse. Um, to allow it to be debilitating for them. Um, And it's hard though, because you have such a weird narrative going on between different groups of people of some people saying, well, depression isn't real. Like get off your ass and go do something. But then you have have these people who are maybe a little too soft and they're like, oh, you know, you just, you can't even like function if you have these things. It's, It's an excuse for everything. And I think that we both have different mental health situations and how we handle them is different. But you know, if you wouldn't mind kind of talking a little bit about your situation, because I think it's really important that people understand that mental health comes in different shapes and forms and there's different um, ways that people are impacted by it and how they deal with it based on whether it's genetic or whatnot.
0: Yeah. So mental health does have a largely genetic component. However, lifestyle has, life has never been more simple in terms of Almost everyone has access to food. Yeah. Almost everyone has access to shelter. Yeah. We're not worried that, oh, we had a bad winter, so we're not going to have crops. We're all going to starve to death. Yes. But life has become more complex, and that everybody cares far more about social aspects and far more about weird things. That hadn't been an issue in the past. So mental health is really different than it ever had been in the past.
1: That's a good point. I never thought about it like that.
0: So things are different. I don't completely honestly know what to think of that. Yeah. Because how do you treat it when we don't have a century of data to really back it up? It makes it a little bit tricky. Interesting. Genetics, I think, plays quite a large part in mental health. Mm-hmm. But let's say you have somebody that naturally is angry.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, if they're always violent and they're hurting people, they can't just say, well, my genetics makes me violent, so I'm fine. No, you throw them in jail.
3: Yeah. If you're
0: violent, you go to jail. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So you can't just say, my genetics make me something, so I'm not going to do my job or I'm not going to be able to be with people. You have to find a way to work with it. Yeah. So um, I may have mentioned to you outside of this, but one of the big genes for genetics for depression and anxiety is the methylene folate reductase or MTHFR.
1: MTHFR. I wonder if I have that written down. No, Mm -hmm. I do not. I have a different one. I have. The serotonin transport and serotonin receptor.
0: V- they're related. Okay, cool. So MTHFR is a really common variant, okay. whereas the serotonin ones are going to be a little bit more rare.
1: Okay, and so what is what is that? like? What does that mean?
0: Well, if you don't have that, you can't. So folate, you're familiar with the vitamin. Mm-hmm. Well, you need to be able to methylate it to be able to use it. Okay. And that's used in making a lot of hormones, like serotonin and melatonin, things like that. Okay. Well, when you lose this, it's not that you lose it completely, but it's not as effective. Okay. So you don't make as much. So okay. people with a double knockout MTHFR, which is really common. It's probably at least five percent of the population. Okay. They tend to be they tend to be very likely to be depressed. Okay. Most of them it's lifelong. Okay. So the simple solution is try to treat them. Yeah. But a lot of them don't respond great to SSRIs, which is the first line of treatment. Why? Well, if you're not making a lot of serotonin in the first place, that could be part of it.
1: Oh, because you're not attacking the root cause, you're just kind of because what does an SSRI do? I mean, I know, I, I, understand It makes but... it,
0: yeah. So once the serotonin is there, it keeps it from being digested or reabsorbed into your brain. Yeah, so, so it, it just keeps stays it from... in that
1: synapse longer. Right. But if you're not creating enough of it, that's really not well, helping the
0: situation. theoretically it should. Uh-huh. But I've been surprised. People that I know that have a double knockout MTHFR, I'd say they're at least twice as likely to not respond to SSRIs. Okay which has been kind of surprising to me. It could be drug metabolism too, uh-huh. but it seems like people that are healthy, you give them an SSRI, they do great.
2: Interesting. But
0: once they have a genetic variant, they tend to struggle with it. Okay. So that's when you end up with things like SNRIs or people that need to do ketamine mm-hmm. or uh, the microdosing psilocybin, things yeah. like that. And they end up with that kind of stuff instead.
1: Okay. So what what is the treatment for that double knockout?
0: Well, theoretically nothing. You don't, hopefully they don't develop depression. It doesn't necessarily mean you absolutely will. Uh It's just you're a lot more likely. So hopefully you don't need to treat it. Yeah. But what I would argue is probably the first key is if you can catch them young, you want to do therapy.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: So I knew I had it. Mm -hmm. And so before we had kids, my wife and I did testing to find out what the chances were.
1: Of your kids having it or you No,
0: of us. Well, of the kids getting it because based on our genetics. Because if we know what we have, we can... Predict what the kids' chances are.
1: How old were you when you found out that you had this?
0: Twenty-five, maybe.
1: Were you feeling depressed, so you're like, I need to go check, get oh, checked I, out?
0: I I started going to therapy when I was fourteen. I,
1: okay, okay.
0: So I I was aware I had problems, okay. and I was one of those ones that didn't respond well
1: Two SSRIs. Correct. Okay.
0: But because of that, I kept have kept a really close eye on my kids, and okay. my two oldest, I started them in therapy about age eight. The youngest I started in therapy at age six.
1: Do they have it?
0: They're still doing it. Yeah. Oh no, no. do oh, they have ha- the knockout? I haven't tested them. Okay. Um, I if they want to get tested, they're welcome to do that when they're old enough to make their own decisions. You just felt the need, but to, if the to be at this proactive. age, if I'm going to do something, it's me doing it for me, not them doing it for them. And I need anything that yeah. they know genetics. I want them to know for themselves. Yeah. So uh, I'll wait for them to choose for themselves. That's cool. But um, no, I started them in therapy. Okay. As soon as I could. Yeah. And. You know, we've warned the teachers and it's not like, oh, my kid has a problem. You're going to need to drop everything you're doing and take care of my (laughs) own kid. And that's all. Yeah, We'll warn them, hey, this kid, you can't stick him with his friends in his classroom. Everyone else, that's beneficial, but it won't work with this one. Yeah. So you got to kind of stick him on a side where he's with people he won't talk to. Yeah. Things like that. And we're we're trying really hard to make sure that they can keep going. And um, so my oldest son, finally in eighth grade, we allowed him to get antidepressants, but...
1: Because what was his behavior? What was he exhibiting that kind of made you feel that there was a need for that?
0: For him, it stood out with anger. Okay. And it was obvious that it was not just an anger all the time. It was very clear that it was rooted in depression. Okay. Because of what he was saying and how he was acting, you knew it wasn't that he hates everyone else. It was clearly depression.
1: And have those been effective for him?
0: Yeah, luckily. Okay. Um, The lowest dose you can possibly get on Prozac. Okay. And it seems to have worked miracles. However you can't assume that taking it will work forever. Yeah. So you have to either assume that every once in a while you have to up your dose, Yeah. change medications or learn to deal without it sooner or later. Yeah. So I don't know what we're going to do. I would prefer to not get any of my kids antidepressants if I can avoid it. Yeah. Cause what did but, you end up
1: deciding to do? Because the SSRIs didn't work for you.
0: I had to switch to an SNRI actually.
1: Okay. So you are, so you're on them. Right. How has that experience been for you? Do you feel that there, like, how has it impacted your life?
0: Uh, honestly, I would not recommend SNRIs for anybody unless you fail off of SSRIs. Okay. They, they're generally speaking, they're bad for your heart. Mm-hmm. They speed up your heart rate. Yeah. They, uh, um, generally speaking, if you take them long term, you'll probably live fewer yeah. years. And they have more physical side effects than any antipsychotic, antidepressant, mood stabilizer, anything related to that. Wow. If I miss them for a day, I start getting really dizzy and not feeling good. If I miss them for two days, my vertigo gets so bad, I start throwing up.
1: Like you're in withdrawal.
0: Oh, it, it is more serious than most, than anything else you can get a prescription that's for. That's really.
1: insane.
0: I mean, maybe not as bad as like opiates, yeah. but anything that's mood altering, it's worse than any of those.
1: So obviously, you know the, the consequences of, of the drug, but at the same time, you know, you, that you need it. Was there any point before you got on an SSR or even the SNRI that you wanted to try and fix this with, with lifestyle, or is that just ignorant for anyone to think? Is this, no, that you I need tried to? It. okay, so yeah. you're like, okay, I need medication. And that is something that I am like, great. And I think people need to understand that for some people it's genetic. Like you, there is an actual problem that we can see. Something's not being produced correctly.
0: Yeah. I do think that if it is largely genetic, there are things you can do. Yeah. But even with doing all of those things, I wasn't okay. Exactly. One of my biggest things was insomnia. Uh-huh. If I'm not taking anything, I'll sleep literally one to two hours a night. Yeah. And I'll just wake up and can't do anything, can't sleep.
1: Yeah. And so it's like you could have somebody, and I just think of like David Goggins, right? You could have somebody like him telling you to do all of these things for yourself to like, you know, do cold plunges, get sunlight, all those things, which are fantastic. But
0: uh, I did that. Yeah. At the those. end of the
1: day, that's not going to be enough for you.
0: So I'd get up at, you know. 3 a.m. because I couldn't sleep yeah go to bed at one wake up at three and realize there's no way I'm going back to sleep so I well the gym's closed so I go out for a run do things like that and then do a cold shower and I was eating I mean I was eating really healthy yeah I still eat really healthy but like my diet was perfect I was doing everything
1: and you were not happy like you just were not okay
0: right it's it's a little bit hard to describe yeah there's depression that you're like kind of feeling sad and a little bit angry yeah and then there's depression where it's like it's almost like you feel a fire inside yeah. and it's trying to burn its way out. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like a burn. It feels like a burning desire to kill yourself or to just yeah. be dead. Yeah. And that's just really hard to deal with.
1: Well, absolutely. And I'm so glad that like, I think people talk about depression, but there's a difference between talking about it and being able to educate on it and helping people understand yeah. the root cause of why people are taking medication. And I think it's like important to contrast your experience with mine. Cause like when I moved here, mental health is not running my family never had any problems whatsoever but it's like i moved here and i you know little backstory i moved here from la selling solar where we would go out every weekend nice restaurants wild like people doing coke off the couch (laughs) i don't i i'm i'm telling you that's
0: good for mental health (laughs) yeah
1: right seriously but it's like wildlife and then i move here now i'm like
0: go cow tipping
1: yeah right i'm like no money like just so different studying eight hours a day whatever. And I finally go see a therapist because I was feeling so off for probably two months.
0: There are more things than just that. So the first there's yeah. the style. Second, you're at a different elevation. Yeah. Lower oxygen is not as good for mental health as you'd hope. Yeah. It's cold here. Yeah. The light isn't as long. Yeah. So uh, in the winter here, and we get cloudy. So people talk about, oh, no, Salt Lake's a great sunny city. Yeah. If you look at the annual number of hours of yeah. sun. But if you look at the number of hours of less than 30% cloud cover. Well, we average about two to three hours of sunlight a day in the winter. Yeah. Whereas in the summer, sure. It's like nine, 10 hours a day. of course. Yeah. So so that's, so, so being here makes a really big difference.
1: For sure. And yeah, LA where it's sunny all the time. And I was like, okay, I think I'm going to go see a therapist, which was big for me because I'd never done that before because I never needed one. Oh, they told you
0: you were crazy, right?
1: Well, it was so weird because I was like, something is just not right. And I'm, I think that's something that comes with like taking care of yourself. And I think you would agree that when you take care of yourself and you're like into and you're exercising, you're eating right, sleeping, you know, when something's off. And so I just knew something was off. And so I go see a therapist and she's like, I think you have adjustment disorder. Like, and I'm yeah. like, okay, I don't even know if that's a thing. If we've made that up, whatever. And it was so wild. Cause she asked me how I'm feeling. And essentially I'm just like, yeah, I feel off. Like I don't feel right. Like, Something's wrong. The, that that session, she goes, okay, I think that we need to put you on antidepressants. From one conversation.
0: So Utah actually has the highest rate of antidepressant use.
1: I was it, shocked.
0: It tends to be a lot of times the first first go-to. Yeah. So antidepressants, I think, are absolutely necessary. We need to have them. Yes. But they're not the safest thing to start with right away. Well, so I yeah. had my kids. I've only let the one start taking antidepressants. He was 13. Yeah. And he just barely started. Yeah. But so we waited. So he had been in therapy for probably four to five years. Yeah. We even tried Redolin before that. Yeah. Because it seems to be really well tolerated. Mm -hmm. But if you give people antidepressants, it seems to be able to, for some reason... Some people, it gives them energy and the will to do things before it changes. I heard this before it changes anything with depression. Yes. So if you take people that want to kill themselves and suddenly you give them the will to do things, they can do it. Yeah. And I unfortunately have seen that happen. Yeah. So So it's it's like it's scary. It's not necessarily the safest thing to do.
1: No. And I was like, what? I just stared at her and I was like, what in the heck?
0: That okay? It's likely it's it is Utah. Yeah. So they're willing to do things, but if you, if possible, it's really important to try to research these kind of things before you do them at all.
1: Yes. And that's what I said is I was like, first and foremost, I would want to do my research, but I said two, I want to get a full comprehensive metabolic panel from my blood work before I do anything.
0: Do you do the full hormones too?
1: Yes. And so I went to my, um, it's she's a nurse practitioner. And I said, Hey, I want you to pull my blood. This is what I want you to pull, pull everything. She pulls it all come. I can, this is what she pulled it in November. I come back, everything was off. My vitamin D tanked, vitamin B, B12 tanked, iron, severely anemic. Like your iron's supposed to be between, uh,
0: Is this ferritin or is this total iron?
1: Total iron. So my total iron should be between 22 and 50, something like that. UGs or whatever. I had three like severe. And so that combined with my vitamin D and my, um, one of my estrogen derivatives was like through the roof, which made zero hmm. sense. Because How about things like
0: cortisol or T3 or any of those? My T3
1: was normal. I don't think I pulled cortisol, which I should have, because I knew my stress was high, but I was surprised by my estrogen just because I never had any troubles with like maintaining body temperature or weight gain or anything like that. But I was like, okay, no shit. Like, no wonder I feel like garbage. Everything is off. And she goes, okay, we're going to start you on these supplements, whatever I get on all these supplements. I swear within like two weeks I felt so much better but it's like had I not had yeah. the education of understanding how you know vitamin d can contribute to depressive symptoms along with low iron I I would have just gone with the antidepressants because I didn't know any better and so it just blew my mind that nobody like told me if I had been just your average person why, why aren't we starting with something like that before we jump to antidepressants?
0: So things like that can be a little bit tricky because, yeah. number one, there's a lot of things to look at. Yeah. Number two, you'd be surprised how difficult it is for doctors to interpret those tests, especially hormones. Oh, yeah. So when I did hormone testing, I got the results back, and I was like, this is really bad. Yeah. And the doctor was like, no, no, it's just fine. We're good. <laughs> so I went to an endocrinologist, and they said it was a joke. Yeah. So you got to... And it's also tricky when you go to somebody like a nurse practitioner and it's like, look, I have 12 years mm-hmm. of education in college or work between bachelor's degree, master's degree, postdoc and yeah. PhD. I've got 12 years of formal education. Yeah. So seeing something that I've studied a lot more than they ever did, it makes it a little bit tricky. Yeah. To, but having them be like, oh, well, your total estrogen is 32. Well, the range says yeah. between 40 and 80. Well, I guess you're fine.
1: Yeah. She had no idea what I was high and it was so funny. Oh, you're going to die. I still can't get over this. I think it's hilarious. I switched providers, by the way, because this happened. Just, I'm not going to say where this is at, but um, I interpreted my blood work on my own. Like I got my yeah. own supplements. I interpreted myself because she, she looks at me. I kid you not. And so my A1C was elevated. Really? Yeah. See, that was my face too. That's I f- weird. I flipped and I was like, I, there's no way for people who don't know. Um, your A1C has to do with your, um, it's like a marker for diabetes, like prediabetes. It's how much glucose is on your red blood cells. So anyway, my A1C is elevated and I was like, what in the hell? There's no way. And so how high was it? 5.7. That is weird. She sits me down. She looks at me and she goes, okay, so I think we need to talk about exercise and losing weight. (laughs) And I, I think I didn't, I didn't know what to say for a good 30 seconds. And I, I think I left that appointment. I like, I could not even sit in the room because I was like, you obviously have no idea what, what you're talking about. I switched providers. I'm now seeing an MD um, who thankfully was educated. So I was like, this makes no sense. I exercise frequently. I eat so healthy. And what he's like, well, what your previous provider didn't know is that if you have a super, super low iron, that can impact your A1C.
0: So can your hormones too. Yes. Pretty heavily.
1: And he's like, also, obviously the fact that you're progesterone's off your estradiol's off like
0: if you're if any of those are a little weird so i've seen people like pcos yeah and they'll come in in a point reading for blood sugar it'll be like 240 well if you see that right off the bat that's definitely diabetes doesn't yes. matter what you ate that high indicates diabetes yes. and then you put them on cgm it's normal it's just it spikes ridiculously high yeah and
1: how weird is that but it's like our doctors and providers well, not being well educated on all these PCOS
0: things like- is really complicated to treat yeah it's not great one of the first things i do is put you on metformin mm-hmm. it does help but it's not attacking the root cause at all
1: well yeah and it's like i just saw a pa dermatologist i'm not i'm sorry i'm not saying pas or NPs anymore i saw, he i stepped into his office because i was struggling with acne i kid you not like pretend you're me he he's like looking at his story, He goes like this so your acne's hormonal and i was like you didn't even look at my face he prescribes me spironolactone. I swear I was in and out that door in like three minutes. He's like, I'm preser- prescribing spironolactone. I'm like, thankfully I know what spironolactone is because I just got tested on it in the um, structure and function final, but I get the spironolactone and he went over no side effects XYZ. I know what it does. I already have low blood low blood pressure, but I was like thinking about, it. I'm like, okay, well, if I take this, it's going to block my testosterone uptake in my face. But once I stop taking it, it's just going to come right back. And I was like, well, why is my testosterone high in the first place? Because it was high on my blood work. And so I'm like, we're not getting to the root cause of this at all.
0: Did he tell you it was because of the steroids you were taking?
1: Oh, do you want to know what he told me? I called the (laughs) office because I started having really weird adverse reactions to it. And I was like, what's happening? Because I started to like get hot flashes. Um, I started to gain a little bit of weight. I started to feel really bloated. I was moody. I was like, I feel like I'm in menopause. And so I was doing some research because that's all I can do. And they were saying that um, because my testosterone is being blocked, I think my estrogen was predominating or something. Yeah. And so I called his office and I was like, hey, what the heck? Like, this is happening. We did not go over this and all. And he was like, well, you know, you should stop weightlifting um, because then that is going to decrease the testosterone because testosterone, testosterone builds muscle. I'm like, yeah, I know that. But that's like the worst advice. You just want me to stop being healthy? Like, that's not the answer. So I just crazy experiences I was not expecting to have, but literally said that. And I was like, I, I just stopped the sprint lactone. I started a new skincare routine. I'm trying to balance out my gut. Like I'll love, I, I feel like I had maybe some dysbiosis going on and my skin is clearing up so much and I'm shocked, but I'm like, I've done from my blood work and my hormones. And it's like, I feel like I'm my own best advocate, you know, and I'm my best advocate for my mental health, for my body. And I'm like, I'm going to be a future physician. I just, I have lost so much hope in our current providers. It's wild.
0: Yeah. I feel like working with the medical system has made things a lot harder for me. Yeah. I feel like the students we're training, we're doing our best. Yeah. But.
1: Do you feel like you have better faith in our students?
0: In the students right now? Yeah. But they're learning it. Whereas when I was in grad school, we had five hospitals that I worked with. Wow. And when I worked at the University of Utah as a postdoc, we had the one hospital I worked with. I'd work with people that were theoretically doing the best and the top of everything. And I'd see a lot of big mistakes similar to that kind of thing.
1: Well, it's just like, there's so many, there's so many factors that go into every visit with no matter what problems you have. But I'm glad that we were kind of able to touch on a couple of things genetic wise, because I think a lot of people, one, don't understand genetics. And I think a lot of people don't understand to what extent genetics have an influence on our health. And I think we're still learning about it. And kind of the last thing I wanted to touch on was epigenetics. So Mm -hmm. do you think that there are epigenetic factors, i.e. like, you know, environmental pollutants, environmental things that are having an impact on like obesity and our health?
0: Yeah, Um, I think so. I think that artificial hormones that are in the food i think that affects things too
1: i've heard that because then some people like oh that's like not true and i'm like i feel like it is though well
0: i don't really know for certain this isn't stuff i've worked with yeah supposedly there aren't supposed to be any kind of artificial hormones in any of the foods we get but But there are i don't know also um anything like uh insecticides or uh even weed killer like I won't mention the company, but there have been huge yes. lawsuits with, yes. with there a was specific one with company. cancer,
1: and I, I remember that one. Well, uh,
0: there's cancer, and there's Parkinson's, and there's yeah. Alzheimer's, and then there's asthma and breathing problems. Like, yeah. They've got everything. Basically, if you can think of something that could be environmentally related, this looks like it causes it directly.
1: So what that's doing is these environmental pollutants or chemicals. They are physically capable of changing our DNA.
0: Well... It depends. They okay. could change your gut microbiome. Okay. They could change the epigenetic modifications. When okay. I worked with that though, I found epigenetic modifiers. They changed a lot faster than people would think. Really? It used to be people would say, Oh, epigenetics means something that was the environment of your grandparents so you inherited. Yes. Well, not really. So I do stuff with let's say vitamin C. I have a little vitamin C. I culture it. I can add vitamin C for literally two hours and it completely changes it. Entire thing. Wow. So, it's kind of an ongoing thing.
1: Which is wild you said that because I was just talking to one of my classmates earlier today. And Mm. she was saying, well, yeah, you know, epigenetic factors are important, but they're not going to affect our DNA till it's our kids and our grandkids. I'm like, I feel like it's going to have an effect sooner. Like, we talk about how all these things like BPA and whatever, they're causing cancer in us by the time we're 50 or 60. You know, I don't know to what extent that's totally accurate, but I... I would think that there are things in the environment that are changing our DNA for the worse.
0: Yeah. Um, also, we take medication to fix most things nowadays, and I don't think that's really benefiting things.
1: Do you think medications that we take, pharmaceuticals that are intended for certain purposes, have the capabilities of causing epigenetic changes?
0: Well, do you know what percentage of drugs affect cyclic AMP? No. No. It's like 70% of them. And what is cyclic AMP for people who don't know? So cyclic AMP is a small molecule. It is integrated into DNA, but one of the studies from my lab was you elevate cyclic AMP, you're going to change the iron levels intracellularly. You change the, well, the iron two plus, the specific iron, it reduces it, which changes in turn the tet enzyme activity.
1: Which so it actually
0: what? changes the global levels of some of the epigenetic marks just by adding cyclic AMP. Wow! Or cyclic AMP agonists, which can include things like baking soda, even. Oh. So, so sodium bicarbonate directly increases cyclic AMP at least when you change the pH with things. Interesting. So, caffeine does too.
1: Oh. Really?
0: So uh, um, ever there are a lot more things that change epigenetics than people used to realize. Yeah. But what I worked on largely for my graduate work was with vitamin C. We found if you take something with a vitamin C insufficiency, now you take something that's normally added, it doesn't really do anything.
1: Like a person?
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I usually use cells because yeah. you don't have to kill a human to work with my cells. That's a very good or point. Or an animal for that part. So yeah. I didn't I didn't want to kill anything if yeah. I could avoid that. So I worked with cells. You take something with lower levels of vitamin C, You add the vitamin C to the media, Night and day difference. Like, it changed them so much that when you do sequencing, you wouldn't even think they were the same cell type. Wow.
3: They don't even look
0: the same. Like, it is a huge, huge difference. You don't usually see that with anything, even big drugs. They usually change that. So then I started, tried to look into it more as much as I could with humans. So obviously, I'm not taking out anybody's retina. But when people had to have vitriotomy surgery, they already had a needle back there, and they'd take out some of the vitreous humor Well, they were throwing it away. So I was able to get an IRB to start collecting that and measure the vitamin C levels. When I looked at people with proliferative diabetic retinopathy versus people that didn't have any diabetes at all, it was about a tenfold difference in vitamin C level.
1: So the people who had diabetic retinopathy, they were low in vitamin C? Yeah,
0: they were tenfold lower.
1: And is that because I think, from what I understand from your research, from what I learned about it, it's because glucose is competing with the vitamin C?
0: Yeah, but only really to get it across the blood retinal barrier, to get it into your eye and your brain. Those are the two places that it really affects it.
1: So why why do you hypothesize or do you know yet why the vitamin C was lower?
0: Oh yeah, the higher glucose levels. Okay. So high glucose levels, you have lower vitamin C. So so I was only measuring it in the eyes. Yeah. You check it in the serum. It's actually well, depends on the study. Okay. Studies are hit and miss. Generally yeah. speaking, they show it's about sixty to eighty percent of what the normal healthy population is. Yeah. So, arguably going down from one hundred percent to eighty percent, does that make any change? I don't know. Yeah. But tenfold, yes, that much will make a change. Wow. So yeah, we found huge, huge differences. It's kind of ridiculous.
1: This is kind of a stupid question, but like, you know how they say that you could take like a thousand milligrams of vitamin C and you'll just pee it out for like immune purposes. They're like, oh yeah, stuff your body full of vitamin C so you don't get sick. How, like, how do you ensure that like, that's not causing any changes to your DNA? Cause you're just peeing it out. Like, do you, if that makes sense? Well, like-
0: if you were to be able to get sufficient and add extra, you'll pee it out. It won't really do anything. Okay. So my first work I did with vitamin C, a lot of it was with cancer cells. Mm-hmm. Well, cancer cells, you grow them in a culture dish, they grow kind of like fungus. I mean, yeah. they grow a lot faster than you would expect a cancer to grow. Yeah. Even like compared, so cancers obviously grow faster than normal mammalian cells. Yeah. But in a dish, they grow really fast. Interesting. Well, yeah. So the first thing I did was added vitamin C to the media when I plated it, and they wouldn't stick to the dish. So what? I come back the next day and I don't have any cancer cells. You're so kidding. So I was like, okay, well, okay. So I paid them. Then I waited for two days and talked to some other people from the lab. Then I added vitamin C and I measured the apoptosis level. The apoptosis was like 40% of the cells. So I started killing them off. Uh, Well, that's not really what we want in general. I mean, sure, for cancer, sure. Yeah, I want to kill the cancer cells. Yeah. But this isn't looking good. Tried it on uh, retinal cells that were primary. I added vitamin C. They grew faster. They stuck better. And they formed a tighter monolayer too. And I ended up finding the same thing with any primary cells I ever grew. Like Schwann cells grew way better when we added vitamin C.
1: Okay, so, so why the hell aren't we injecting vitamin C into like a pancreatic tumor?
0: Well, so re- originally I thought, eh, you had a lot of vitamin C, it kills everything. Yeah. So you don't want to inject it. Come to find out, so since about that time they were doing research with IV, they'd give people like five grams of vitamin C. It'd be just fine. They have very, very minimal side effects. I mean, maybe some bruising at the site of injection.
1: But, but wasn't the vitamin C helping the retinal cells grow and only killing the cancer cells? It was
0: for cell culture. However, you have to get it there in the first place. Oh, okay. So I do think it will make a difference. But most people, sh- 95% of the population should have sufficient levels of vitamin C. Yeah. So if you take sufficient and add more, I don't think it'll really do much. Okay. Or you look at like the studies that they did with the common cold and they take normal people and they give them extra vitamin C. Changes nothing for how many colds. Yeah, they that's
1: get. what I've heard. Like Does once nothing. you're already sick, it doesn't do anything.
0: Well, even to prevent it. Is there sufficient data healthy... to
1: show that vitamin C actually is helpful for preventing disease and helping your immune system?
0: Common cold. I don't. Know. They actually okay. have something like forty clinical trials. All of them showed absolutely nothing. But if they Working were to
1: take, A, dude, my parents.
0: <laughs> but if they were to take people that had subclinical levels of scurvy, which is actually about 10% of the population in America. Really? Anybody that does the McDonald's diet, they're going to have low vitamin C. If I actually took...
1: did learn that on that show, uh, What's Supersize Me. Yeah. yeah. So their vitamin
0: C levels were actually usually a lot lower. Wow. But if you take those people, then did the study, now you might find something.
1: Yeah. But if you sense. take
0: normal, healthy people and add more, I don't think it's going to do much.
1: It's weird how things like, you know, in like a culture can be so starkly different from when you actually apply that same principle to a human. You're like, all this sucks. You're like, I had a cure for cancer. No, I
0: don't. Well, I was pretty well aware these had low vitamin C levels to start with. So I was aware of that. Actually, they do use IV vitamin C for cancers. They do. It does work, but it's not like a cure. So if you were to do that and you didn't do your chemotherapy, you didn't do what you didn't get it resected, Yeah, it's still going to kill you. You still have to treat it.
1: I see what you're saying. It's just
0: it might help.
1: Okay, that makes sense. And
0: from what I've seen, it helps with side effects from chemotherapy which is obviously just like giving people poison to see which dies first, the cancer or the person.
3: Yeah, that totally makes sense. So it's tricky. Yeah.
0: It does seem to help with that. But if you're not, if you don't have tumors, I don't necessarily think that taking IV vitamin C is going to do you much good.
1: Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Well, and you know, the last thing I kind of wanted to touch on here is as we were kind of talking about environments and pollutants and things like that. I kind of wanted to quickly touch on autoimmunity um, just because it seems to be a hot topic right now. And my aunt actually passed away in 2019 of an autoimmune condition that we still don't know what it was. Oh, really? Yeah. Super rare, super strange. And so I just kind of want to know what are your thoughts on, I know the answer is hard, right? Of what causes autoimmunity? Is it genetic? Is there a genetic component? Is it environmental um, what do we know so far in terms of autoimmunity and its relation to genetic affiliation?
0: It's both. Okay. It's mixed. So if you were to take something like, let's say multiple sclerosis, yeah. and you do a genetic study, MHC1 comes back with a p-value that you can't even calculate on a computer really.
1: Okay.
0: So yes, they are very directly linked. However- Genetics. The genetics is very directly linked. Interesting. However, you take people that are predisposed and you change things, change what they're exposed to. It definitely makes a difference. It huh. used to be that they said you don't ever want to expose kids to certain things, like um, like animals. You don't want them to touch fuzzy animals when they're which babies. I, yeah, which they made used it worse. to say that, and they found that then it actually made it worse because when they finally were exposed, the reactions tended to be stronger. Yeah. Now they're saying the opposite. Yes, expose them young, but don't be like, oh, I want to expose my kid to a rabbit, so I'm going to get them a pet rabbit and keep it in their crib. I see. You need to. You need to be reasonable.
1: Yeah, that makes now, sense. I did that
0: with my kids, but my dogs were also hyperallergenic. Yeah. And the dogs just like to snuggle the baby.
1: Okay. Well, and it's interesting too because so I feel like we're, death is like coming up right now, but my uncle passed away from multiple sclerosis. Oh, really? But he had like um a really fast onset. It was that um what did we you came into our pod and you drew it? What was that syndrome? Not syndrome. It's like a um it's like an ideology of how it works with like
0: Oh, like um, if it's different in sexes. Yes. And yeah. Oh, What's that? yeah. Whatever
1: that thing is called. Um, he got multiple sclerosis out of nowhere. Like he was a wildland firefighter, like climbing oh. trees, like mountain man, beard, long hair, everything. And he Wish got I MS. Could do that. Yeah, he <laughs> died. He died within five years. And all of us are like, what? What happened? Like, how did he get MS? Like, there's nothing genetic so far as we can tell. So it's like, was it environmental? Like, was it sporadic? Like, is there anything that we know?
0: It could have been related if he was a firefighter. It could have been related to the smoke all the time.
1: Okay, so we do have environmental cues sometimes with certain autoimmune conditions well, it, like that. It
0: can. Okay. Um, I would assume being outdoors and exercising all the time would be beneficial. Yeah. So
1: that's why we were like, "What the heck?"
0: But this isn't exactly something I've studied. Yeah. So I can't say that for certain. Yeah. But Generally speaking, almost anything, getting exercise and fresh air is good. Yeah. But smoke, I know, is generally tends to be bad.
1: And that would be an example of an epigenetic change? Well, it could be. Okay.
0: Um, sometimes it's just a chemical change. It could change the epigenetics. Some things don't change the epigenetics at all. They just change. They might fire up certain receptors. Or, for instance, let's say hypoxia. Okay. Because hypoxia, let's say I take a... So what I would do with culture, just add cobalt chloride, and it'll suck the oxygen out of the liquid. So, like, within seconds, I can basically cause hypoxia. Okay. Well, I'd have things that didn't change at all in the RNA levels, but the proteins completely changed because vitamin, so vitamin C is a cofactor for the HIF-1-alpha hydroxylases, uh-huh. which turn off HIF-1-alpha, which is the main hypoxia factor. Okay. So, it's const- continuously degraded. Yeah. But So, it's always made, but it's always degraded. Yeah. But as soon as you add something within seconds, the protein stops being degraded. So it stays high. Well, now you change that. Suddenly it changes everything.
1: So it's not it's... necessarily affecting the DNA level, but downstream.
0: So it could be affecting the DNA. It depends.
1: So we just don't know yet.
0: Yeah. A lot of these things, it's hard to tell. But okay. you just kind of have to do some kind of experiments to do that.
1: Do we have, from what you know at all, like have there been any like known things that we've seen in the environment that cause certain autoimmune conditions?
0: Autoimmune ones are tricky. Yeah. Usually what they end up doing is an association study. Okay. And they usually find that you know, this causes a 12% increased risk. Okay. And usually if you're looking at an odds ratio about 3 is where you think it might be a direct cause.
1: What does that mean? What is that 3? Three- so, that,
0: that mean? would be like a 300% increased risk. Okay. Or, or really a threefold increased risk. Based on these Or a threefold decrease either okay. way. Okay. But generally speaking with things with the environment, you usually see relatively small effects. Yeah. So it's it's kind of hard to say.
1: Yeah. Would you say in genetics, that's where the research is going, is studying more epigenetic factors, or is it more like DNA modification?
0: Well, DNA modifications are epigenetic ones. Yeah, even, sorry. I like mean variants. by
1: humans and kind of by the
0: environment. I think they're still doing a lot of things with individual variants. The gene-environment interactions, even a lot of those aren't epigenetic at all. Okay. Like certain markers for things like, I believe, Parkinson's, there was one big study that they did. Uh-huh. Did it out in New Jersey or something. I don't yeah. even remember what it was. Yeah. They found a variant that was really specific. Okay. And it looked really strong. Yeah, Repeated in Utah, nothing. Repeated it again in Miami, it confirmed again. Come to mm-hmm. find out, that variant only matters if you smoke. So when they did it again with all smokers, it doesn't matter where they do it, always comes up really strong marker. So some mm-hmm. of those things are gene-environment interactions that aren't epigenetics. It's just that it having that variant predisposes you to respond poorly to something like in this case with smoking
1: because more people smoked in new jersey and miami
0: right utah has a very low smoking rate oh they do Mm.
1: okay that makes more sense that is so interesting see and then it begs the question of what if you're around somebody who smokes that person is exposing you to secondhand smoke are they increasing your risk of parkinson's
0: uh depends on your genetics for it but my wife's uh grandfather died of emphysema as a Uh non-smoker but lived with a sister who was a very heavy smoker oh my gosh so you can
3: yeah and they put
0: them together so the doctor said well he would have lived another 20 years if he didn't smoke yeah well he didn't yeah but his caretaker did so
1: that's so So
0: there are things so could it be from secondhand smoke yeah or fighting fires yeah yeah or could it be your job let's say you work in some industry where you work with a lot of harsh chemicals all the time yeah And back in the seventies, they didn't know any of these chemicals did anything. Yeah. Now they're getting better at it, but we still don't necessarily know.
1: And aren't all those, a lot of those chemicals have leaked into our environment and there's no taking back those.
0: Yeah. Some of them are more okay. Some things are more like radiation, like the tsunami that hit Japan. There's how much we can do about that now. It's just, it is what it is. Yeah. Just deal with it. Yeah. So I don't really know.
1: That is hard. And my last question for you, um, as we kind of conclude this is moving forward, what are, if you know of any are there any like tests that you can do to see if you're like predisposed to alzheimers are there any biomarkers that we kind of have the ability to look at and i did forget to ask this earlier what is your opinion on biohacking in terms of taking like supplements and peptides
0: so something like alzheimers yes you can do testing for it okay the biggest one would be the apoe gene
1: okay Oh, I did read about that.
0: So if you have two copies of APOE4, your chances of getting Alzheimer's, if you live to age 75, you have a 90% chance of having Alzheimer's.
1: Holy crap.
0: However, it's not the most common variant. So it's probably less than 2% of the population has two copies of APOE4. Yeah. Um, I So part of why my wife and I did testing was I wanted to find out any variants for things like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Yeah. If they'd had those, I wouldn't have let my kids do contact sports. Okay. Because contact sports is a big thing that leads to those two. What? So you, I didn't know this. Anything that anytime you're getting hit in the head increases your risk of any kind of dementia.
1: I did not know that.
0: Yeah. So you take for for instance, let's say people that played in the NFL. Yeah. The risk of Alzheimer's is really high.
1: Really? I did not know that. Yeah.
0: So Wow. So, if my kids could potentially have two ApoE4, no contact
1: sports. Okay. And did you but test them for that or no?
0: No, I tested my wife and I, and they have a 0% chance of that.
1: Amazing, because you guys don't have it.
0: My wife has, I think my wife had one ApoE4 okay. and one ApoE3, and then mine were both B3. Okay. And then if you have two ApoE2, it protects against that, but then you have a higher risk of heart disease. So there's kind wow. of no real perfect That's balance. crazy
1: that we can even see that.
0: Yeah. So okay, cool. these were found back in the early 90s. And since then, they've found several variants. There are many variants that are related. Okay. None of them would I would I say are direct causes. Okay. So you could have somebody that has two ApoE4, lives a healthy life, dies at age 75, no signs of Alzheimer's ever. It's possible. It's just it greatly increases your risk.
1: Yeah. And so we can we see that across the board with other diseases?
0: It depends on the disease. Okay. So, um, some of them, like HLA-B27, is uh, if you have that one, it's a marker for specific autoimmune diseases. Oh, okay. Like ankylosing spondylitis. I believe it's also tied with okay. multiple sclerosis. Okay. So a couple of those ones. So some of them, yes. I would suspect that if we did enough testing, we could figure it out for all of them.
1: Do you think it's beneficial for people my age to be tested for stuff like that?
0: Very much depends. Depends okay. on the person. And depends on what you would do. Okay. If you wouldn't change anything... No.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point.
0: Because if you're not going to change your lifestyle, let's say you have somebody that smokes and is, was a college football player and likes to box and that's what they're going to do and it doesn't matter. And you tell them, oh, it looks like you did Alzheimer's. Yeah. Well, now you just told them your life's going to suck in 20 years. Yeah. Your life's awful. You might as well hate yourself, but you didn't do anything to prevent it. So the only time I would really ever do testing is if you're actually going to do something.
1: So what if it's somebody who's healthy and like they have this variant, are there like diets or things that they recommend for people? There or... are. Okay.
0: Um, but even then, it's questionable. So yeah. they say that for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, sometimes mm-hmm. just being vegan. Interesting. But I don't necessarily know that I trust this research. Yeah. But no, people that are healthy about it. A lot of times, if there's nothing they can do and you get them tested, it's like, oh, well, you still have, I just really... have this
1: to look forward to and worry about. That's a good point.
0: What they say is that, um, what's the saying? The shoe's going to drop? Yeah. So that's what they're saying is you're the bug and the shoe's just going to drop. And yeah. now you know it. Yeah. And it would be better off to just live your life as is. Because yeah. if I took somebody that's going to die at 30 of some kind of a car accident, yeah. did their genetic testing when they were 16 and told them, you're going to have Alzheimer's and die from that.
1: You're like, oh, good. Great. And then
0: they're going to die at 30 anyway. And then what good did that ever do? All it did was give them stress.
1: Yeah. And fear.
0: So if you can't do anything about it, generally speaking, I would say don't bother testing anybody.
1: Okay. Good now, if it's
0: something that you're going to change. So I wanted to do yeah. testing for Alzheimer's. Because then I could potentially prevent something with my kids.
1: With your kids. But they
0: have zero risk of having two bad copies. I let them do what they want.
1: Totally makes sense.
0: Never even talk to them about it. If they want to look into it, they can look into it when they're older and figure out the risk.
1: Yeah, I like that. That it's up to them. Yeah, okay. I... And then, yeah, what what are your thoughts about biohacking, like with peptides and uh, so supplements?
0: So <laughs> I think it's generally perfectly fine. Okay. okay However, cool. I think this is a part where we've got some problems with the way things are set up. Okay. Because have you ever heard of a... FDA approval for something like vitamin C no. or BPC 157. No, because I listen to TB a podcast of
1: these guys that take these peptides and they're prescribed, but they always disclaim it's not FDA approved or whatever. Well we'll
0: never ever ever get FDA approved. Not with the current government. Why? Because it costs millions and millions of dollars to get FDA approval for something that is natural and can't be patented. So if you can't possibly make a return on your investment, who's who in the right mind is gonna spend $12 million to get FDA approval for BPC-157 when anyone is legally allowed to make it.
1: Oh, and it's just going to keep you healthier.
0: Well, I mean, it keeps people healthy. So I tore my rotator cuff last week. Yeah. That's a common thing that people use for that. Yeah. I haven't used it yet, but it is something people use for that. Well, yeah. if there were a clinical trial for it, well, now I know, gee, the FDA says it works. Yeah. So I can make it for yeah. $2. They don't. They don't get anything because I made it cheaper than they did. Well, why don't
1: they make it and then just sell it to you at a higher price like they do with every pharmaceutical?
0: Well, every pharmaceutical is generally patented.
1: Oh, because I get what you're saying. You can't patent something that already exists in your own body or growth hormone or whatever. Okay. I understand what you're saying.
0: So now you make a change on it. So let's say you take Mm GLP-1. We want to work with this thing because it's really big.
3: Yeah.
2: I'm
0: going to verify or make a GLP-1 agonist. It's a different structure and I'm going to sell it with a patent. Yeah. That you can do. but. If, so if you try to take what's natural, you can't patent it.
1: That is such a good point. I was wondering that. I'm like, why do they not have That's so smart. Interesting.
0: So I think that this is a big government's gotten in the way. I mean, I agree. We need to be able to make it that so that if somebody invents something, they need to be able to get a return on it. I yeah, get that. for sure. But we need to be able to also make a way that anything that's natural. So for instance, I used to work with vitamin C. My boss, a lot of the stuff was working with cancer and combining it with chemotherapies. Yeah. Well... You can't get any more funding for it because no pharmaceutical company is ever going to look at trying to work with vitamin C in conjunction with their drug. Because who cares? even you made though it can more effective, stabilize. so now they're going to buy less of it. Yeah. And do what? Yeah. Still use the same drug and then a thing that you can't patent or get any more of? Yeah. So no, they don't want to do it. And they, they flat out shot it down.
1: So where do you get BPC-157 like these? Oh, um Google. Who's selling it?
0: Oh, there are a ton of peptide companies.
1: But the, so how... Because they're obviously making money. Oh, these so these are just... Oh, they, they sell like for small research
0: use only is what they call them.
1: Okay. And then that way no one's held responsible. Right. I understand now. Okay, so if you
0: want to sense. buy that, you just find somebody that sells it for research purposes and go ahead and buy it.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Okay, cool. Actually,
0: I would really like to buy some of that, but I want to try it on mice and rats and see what happens. That's a good point. That'll never get FDA approval. Yeah. The FDA is... Trying to get FDA approval is a bigger task than people realize. It tends yeah. to have a lot of going through the hoops and it's kind of a nightmare.
1: Even our freaking IRB for our research, I feel like uh, it's taken so long that like I can't even imagine trying to do something for the entire country. Like that's insane. Right. That would so take these so long. these
0: things are a big deal and they usually cost many millions of dollars. Cool. So that's never gonna happen. Yeah. But I would like to see what we get with things. Yeah. So because a lot of these things are natural. So there's one called uh, I think it's epithalion or epithalin, uh-huh. maybe.
1: I feel like I've heard of that.
0: So this one, they've been doing research on it in, in Russia since the 70s. but They started doing more of it in the States in the last 20 years. Yeah. They found that it reduced overall mortality by like fourfold. So, and this they started it in people like age like 65 to 70. Yeah. And they'd them for 15 years and it reduced overall mortality by fourfold. And well, you, I'm like,
1: where can I get my hands on this stuff? Well,
0: just Google. So you could you buy 100 milligrams of it and they yeah. do sets of anywhere between one milligram a day or two milligrams a day. That yeah. You inject for until you get through the hundred milligrams total yeah some of them did it one time ever some of them did it one time every year for indefinitely
3: yeah
0: and but some of the research you see one study out of Russia you don't really believe much you kind of yeah. need to see multiple studies yeah yeah and I mean it's not just that it's Russia I don't believe anything if I saw one study one time good you gotta yeah. you gotta really see stuff yeah but they found in culture works miracles
3: that's awesome so
0: that's the kind of thing I'd like to work on with animals yeah. where it's safer. Yeah. And I'd like to so that's what I want to do with my vitamin C. Now, I kind of have a vendetta against if it's possible to not kill something, I'm not going to. Yeah. So I've never I never worked with animals. Yeah.
3: Yeah. But
0: it is something that I would like to do and yeah. work with those or let's say semaglutide or uh what's it called uh, monjaro the so glucagon splits into two pieces. Yeah. And one of them is GLP1 and the other one is hit by I believe it's called monjaro or triazopeptide. Uh-huh. So both of these do roughly the same thing. Yeah. And they're going to speed up your metabolism and they both tend to make people lose fat. Yeah. Well, that sounds great. Yeah. But they also do make you lose um, healthy tissue, including bone. Yeah. Which is not great if you have somebody that's old. Yeah. Potentially getting osteoporosis and you start giving them some maglutide. That's not great.
1: Well, wait, hold on. Is this ozempic? Yes. Oh my gosh. I literally want to do a whole episode on this. This is wild. Well, because here's was, okay. So here's my question. I'm so glad you brought this up because I was like, why does that sound so familiar? Okay, so, but from what I understand, and it has been FDA approved only for people with type 2 diabetes to control their blood sugar, but now doctors are marketing it and there's a billboard in Provo, Ozempic for weight loss. And now they're just oh, yeah. giving it to people no, for weight loss.
0: It, I believe it has been FDA approved for weight loss. Oh, it has. So when I worked with it, we were using it for heart complications back when I was in grad school. And it, it'll lower, so the fat around your heart cuts down by about a quarter if you take ozempic for okay. the the um the 10 weeks the yeah. first 10 weeks and it worked miracles really reduced inflammation a ton so coronary artery disease any of that kind of stuff makes a huge difference okay i didn't realize they were going to end up using it for weight loss until years later so well, I was yeah. doing that in 2014 2015 yeah. maybe so i have some publications of you where to look back with glp1 wow so i think it's great
3: yeah
0: and i think it was a lot more than just weight loss however you could lose bone density. You can lose some muscle mass, things like that. Well, yeah. what if you add let's say growth hormone with it? Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that I feel like would be good to research. Yeah. Luckily, if you're buying it for research purposes, you can buy some agnotide knockoffs for, for like a hundred bucks yeah. for a series that I could go through and inject into animals.
1: Okay. Cause there's like a lot of girls and this is on like TikTok and stuff, but there's like a lot of teen girls in my age who are taking it just to lose weight. And I'm like, do we know the long-term implications of this drug on somebody? who is your age and healthy and doesn't have diabetes. And you're already like not overweight by any means, but you know, you're taking this just cause you want to get a quick fix and lose the weight. Like, I don't know. Is that smart? Is that good? Like I just, I don't know. I'm skeptical. If I were
0: to guess the side effects of some are honestly going to be less than any eating disorder. Okay. So I,
1: <laughs> that's actually a really good point. That's a great point. So
0: is it good for you if you're already fit? to lose extra weight like that i don't think so uh-huh but if you're gonna do it i would much rather see the semaglutide than anorexia or bulimia
1: this is true and i think for me it just was kind of irritating because i was like i work my butt off the natural way to eat right and work out and so i think it just kind of oh i've told you what i do it annoyed and me. i've
0: never taken it but i've been like you know that would be really nice to just do that but yeah. i don't want to pay for it <laughs>
1: yeah i'm like i feel like the natural i don't know i feel like it teaches discipline and We're just so wired for instant gratification. I feel like companies capitalize on that. And they're like, oh, instant weight loss, X, Y, Z. From what I've
0: found though, it actually, I mean, when I was working with heart complications. Wow. And if it's helping your heart, it looks like it's actually pretty darn safe.
1: Well, that's good. It gives people
0: diarrhea a lot of the time. Yeah. Some people get nauseous.
1: Because yeah, they say it makes you like have no appetite. And that's why people lose weight on it.
0: Well, it, both it is an appetite suppressant, but it also hits the glucagon receptors so it actually does speed up your metabolism too.
1: So that's what it's doing is it's making glucagon release glucose because it's the opposite of insulin.
0: Yes, basically. Yeah. yeah,
1: for people who want like a simplified version. Okay, cool. Oh, that is so interesting. I'm glad that you brought that up just because I, I there's been a lot of controversy on it, especially in the fitness community. Mm-hmm. People have differing opinions. And I'm like, well, I, I didn't really have a full opinion on it yet because I wanted to know more of the research behind it. So I'm glad yeah. that.
0: I will say there experience. does tend to be a rebound effect. But it's similar to any diet. Yeah. It's, you go on a diet and then when people stop, a lot of times they have lost some fat-free mass and their their basal metabolic rate isn't quite as good anymore. Yeah. They try to go back to eating and they tend to gain some weight.
1: Yeah. So that's also an important factor to consider too. So
0: that is there, but honestly, it doesn't seem to be any worse than diets as far as I can tell.
1: Okay, cool. Well, honestly, I feel like that concludes everything that I wanted to talk about. I'm so glad that I got to ask you all these questions. I honestly feel like I learned so much. And I think that the public can really benefit from all that we had to talk about. So thank you. Thanks. I'm
0: glad to hear that. Yeah. Thank you. And for I'm glad you on. asked about things I knew about. <laughs>
1: Yay. No, of course. I feel like there's so much knowledge to be shared and I am just so thankful that you, I know you're busy and have a big family. So thank you for taking the time to come on here. Yeah, sure thing. Thank you. We'll see you guys soon. I hope you enjoyed this episode and stay tuned for more things to come.